Hello, and welcome to the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast, a different way of covering and discovering comic books. My wish is to help you find that next fantastic read or rediscover an old favorite. I cover comic books from the golden age to now and even Kickstarter campaigns, so you never know what I might cover, but you will know where to find fantastic comic to read at the end of each show. Hello and welcome. It's Tuesday, October 18th, 2022, and episode 79 of the podcast. Chances are you're a new listener to the podcast because you saw a post or heard who was going to be on the show. Three somewhat big names in comic books, Ron Mars, Daryl Banks, and Keith Champagne will all be part of this episode of the podcast. But you know who the real star of the podcast is? Michael Katz. He's one of those small indie creators who just one day decided to publish his own comic books. This is his third appearance on the podcast. I'm covering his third Kickstarter campaign. I highly recommend checking out those episodes where he appeared in the previous Kickstarters. You'll find those in the show notes. He makes a great guest. I love the comic. The Kickstarter campaign is for Riot Earp. Again, look for the show notes. You'll find a link to that Kickstarter campaign. It's going to be a fantastically big, huge comic book. I'm so excited for Michael. His comic, Riot Earp, has turned out to be one of my favorite indie comics, and I think you'll agree it's something unique. Now, the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast recently celebrated its first anniversary and 75 episodes. I was so pleased to have Gary Carlson of Big Bang Comics, and also known as the grandfather of Image Comics, on for those special anniversary episodes. If you like what you're listening to, check back again. This is normally a short-form podcast covering comics from the golden age till now. Again, I cover indies and Kickstarter campaigns. You'll never know what I'm going to cover each episode, but you will know where to find fantastic comic to read at the end of each of the episodes. Again, this is a longer episode because of the special guests and everything you have going on. But usually, the episodes are bite-sized. If you're new to comics, this is a perfect place to find suggestions of what to read. And if you're an older fan, help you rediscover old favorites or comics you've been meaning to read again and again. There's so many great comics out there. It's always hard to pick a new one or old one to put onto the podcast. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. It'd be awesome of you to follow us the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So look at the show link, or I'm sorry, look at the link tree in the show notes on how to follow us on all of our social media. Again, I am beyond words that Michael approached me to have him on the show and to bring these three guests on the show with him. I told Michael, you could have just came on with the show just by you. I am so grateful he brought all of them on. It was a great episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. All three contributed to Michael's project. And with that kind of talent, you know Michael's on to something fantastically great. Now for me, having them on isn't about bragging rights of who I have snagged on for the show. It is 100% about building the podcast and getting it more exposure. I bring on so many indie publishers and Kickstarters. And the more listeners who check out these things, the better chance those people have of gaining new fans for their comic books and help to support the Kickstarter campaigns. That is so important to me. Also, I do like to spotlight creators, publishers, and comic books from different eras that deserve more attention. Looking through the past episodes, you'll see Gardner Fox, Marie Severinsen, Jim Shooter, just to name a few. 
Lots of times I'll bring on a guest just to talk about particular comic or arcs that are just as readable now, today, as when they were published back then. Again, thank you so much for checking out the podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. I have some fantastic future episodes planned, and I hope you stick around because the comic book podcast that I have is something truly different. It's a different way of covering and discovering comic books. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast. This is a very unique and special episode. We have Michael Katz on, and he is doing a Kickstarter for Ride Earth. Michael is on in the spring for the first one, and he is, again, uh, it was August, I think he was in, and this time around, he's got some big names attached to his project. So we have Daryl Banks, Ron Mars, and Keith Champagne. So I'm going to start off, we're going to talk about Ryder for a few minutes here. Um, so, Michael, I know you're a lawyer and I know what you do, but how did you decide again to get into comic books? What was your, I mean, why? Because you do not look like act like a comic book writer and it's like, and, you know. <laughs> I guess, I guess Ron and Keith are wondering what a comic book writer looks and acts like. Um but now the reason I got into it was because I hate being a lawyer and I'd love to do pretty much anything else with my time. Um, but I mean, I, I've been into comics since I was seven. So you're talking over 45 years. Uh, I started a, a publishing company, you know, in 2002. And I, I really started thinking about doing comics when COVID hit and I had a lot more free time because I didn't have to drive to the office every day. And I thought, you know, now's a good time to do it. I've, I got some free time. I've got some energy from not having to commute every day. And that's what made me want to finally, you know, live out the dream of making comic books. So tell the guys, or I'm sorry, tell the listeners a little bit about Riot Earp, and it's actually taken off pretty good. Were you surprised with how good the reaction would be on your Kickstarters? Uh, well, yeah, I'm always, you know, paranoid about it. anything. I, I mean, I've I've written some novels uh, in the past, um, yeah, and you're you're always worried about what people are going to think of what you do. Um, yeah, I've. Maybe in another 10 years or so, I won't be as worried. I don't know about what you guys have to say on that issue. But yeah, I was I was you know, hoping that you know, people would take to Riot Earp and, and they have. And so far, everybody's you know, given me good reviews, you know, people who have read it. And I'm, I'm happy with the way it's turned out. And I know it's a, a marathon, not a sprint. And I just got to keep going and Keep plugging away and hopefully it'll just grow. So you've assembled this all-star team to be on the book. And you either got a good story of how you know them or you got some really good dirt on all these guys to get them on the project. So how did you manage to really, you know, how did you snag them? I know you guys have worked in the past. I know there was a Deadlands thing that you actually was working with years ago. Michael, yeah. is that correct? 
Um, the, the, I'm, I'm pretty anxious to find out who this all-star team is. Yeah, the Deadlands comic, uh, it was a four-issue miniseries based on the, the Deadlands role-playing game. Uh, Ron was the, the editor-in-chief and wrote one of the stories. Uh, my company was approached by the, the people that put it together, Visionary Comics, and we had a, a partnership. We were going to do prose projects based on the, the license after the comic, but the comic didn't sell as well as expected. Uh, so the prose got shelved, but uh, I, I didn't, I, I might've, you know, talked to Ron once in a, in a group telephone conference call. Uh, but that would have been it. But when the time came to do Ryan Herb, I, it was actually my, my business partner's idea to get Ron involved because he wanted to make sure he wasn't throwing his money away on, on <laughs> my my project. And we thought we'll get you know we'll get a pro like Ron into it, and he can tell me if if I suck, I'll you know I'll I'll close up the project. But uh, yeah, Ron liked how I was doing, and you know he was a big help. And then uh, he kind of, um, you know, and then I thought, you know, it'd be great to have Ron and Daryl, you know, the, the, the Team Supreme together. And, uh, you know, we approached Daryl and Daryl, you know, was interested in doing the, the writer special with us. Uh, I did, well, I've been working on a, a superhero book that, uh, that Keith is inking. And Keith is also a letterer, and he. Uh, That's not true. He, <laughs> no, Al, <laughs> no, Alfie, Alf, your I friend Alfie. I wrote all the lettering work to my friend Alfie Betts. Okay, well, Alf, well, Keith. <laughs> he knows all Keith was the middleman. Keith was the middleman because my because yeah my, my letterer <clears throat> for issue two literally disappeared. No, no. What you guys did, you played a game of rock, paper, scissors, and yeah. Keith lost, and that, that's how he ended up getting the lettering right. job on this job. And yeah, so. so Keith, so Keith helped out and got his friend Alfie involved to do the lettering on uh, right up two had to be totally re-lettered, and 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 big kudos to Keith and his friend Alfie. You guys can work amongst yourselves. <laughs> who gets the credit for that? But uh, Keith's uh, Keith's the Renaissance man, the writer, editor, artist, anchor. It's really it's amazing. How can one person be so bad at all these different jobs? But I managed <laughs> to do it somehow. You know, I ask every person who comes onto the podcast because it actually proves to be a very popular question. What was your comic book origin story? How did you guys get into comic books? Start reading them? Become a lifelong fan? And we are going to start with Keith first, and then Ryan can go, and then Daryl can go. And Michael, you don't go. You already said this answer before, so mm. people are going to go back and right. watch the show from before, because you were on twice, and they really should mm. watch the two episodes. So anyways, Keith, go ahead. Tell us what, how you got the comic books. Uh, I, I guess as a reader, I don't ever remember a time in my life when comic books weren't there. Um. I, you know, I had an uncle, my uncle Dave, when I was young, I was probably four years old, maybe. And he came to me one day and he was like my cool uncle. And I remember him telling me like, oh, comics are cool. Luke Cage is cool. He's my favorite. 
And, uh, and somehow in that conversation, I just decided like, I'm going to be a comic book artist uh, when I grow up. And that was my origin story. That's all I ever wanted to do. I grew up and, and did it. Now I wish I had become a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've been living the dream all these years. Okay, Daryl, how about you? What was your start in comic books? I've, I've always liked some form of comics, you know, all my life. You know, as, you know, as a small child, I, I liked more lighthearted stuff like the, you know, Archie and uh, Harvey. And then uh, later came the superhero thing. But I think as far as deciding when I wanted to uh, to do it as a profession, I was, I would say in high school. Because I really never thought... You know, I had no idea how do you get into comics. I, I just knew that I liked them. I, it was something I wanted to do. I would, you know, me and my friends, we'd make our own comic. I thought, you know, how do you how do you do it professionally? And so, you know, in the in the era of the Stone Age of pre-internet, you know, I just tried to get things word of mouth and couldn't really do a whole lot of traveling for conventions. So it was piecemeal it together and sending samples that sort of thing. But uh, there was always a time where. You know, there was there was never a time I didn't like comics of some form. And uh, drawing, is, of course, was something that was always been a part of my life. Okay, Ryan, you're next. Um, Jim Starlin told me to write comics, so I did. <laughs> that's, that's the short version. That's very funny. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, from before I could even read, there were comics in the house because I had an older brother. Um, and his old comics were in a box in the basement. And I looked at, you know, Kirby FFs and Ditko and Ramita Spider-Man issues and all of that sort of classic stuff that were just, you know, comics in the basement's falling apart and sort of kind of fell in love with stories told with pictures. And then, you know, I'm a little older and, you know, I'm picking out, um, you know, picking out Marvel comics uh, off the spinner rack at the drugstore. And, um you know, read comics till I was 11 or 12, you know, and that and that magical age where you discover girls and cars and things other than comics, decide you've outgrown them. Um, so I didn't look at comics until I was, you know, 17 or 18 again. And by that point, we're, you know, we're in the we're in the mid 80s at that point and Watchmen and Dark Knight were going on and, um you know, a little before that, Miller's Daredevil and Simonson's Thor, all of that sort of um, landmark stuff. And I got sucked right back into it um, and eventually got to be friends with the comics community in the Hudson Valley in upstate New York, um, which included Bernie Wrightson, Jim Starlin, Fred Hembeck, Terry Austin, Joe Staten. Oh, and got And got very friendly with those guys and kind of got pulled into that social circle. Um and, um, you know, got real close with Jim and obviously we're still close. Um, and I copy edited Jim's first novel for him, first prose novel, um, because at that point I was, I think, in college and working uh, as a journalist at the local daily newspaper. So Jim had me copy edit his prose. And when I gave the novel back to him, he was pleased enough with it that he said, hey, did you ever think about writing comics? which, well, of course I've thought about writing comics, but that's not actually a thing you get to do. No. Um, but when Jim says, well, why don't you, why don't you co-write some issues of Silver Surfer with me? And then, you know, we'll see what we can, we'll see what we can do. So, yeah. So my, you know, my secret comics origin is that 
um, Jim Starlin handed me a career and I still have one 32 years later. So how old were you when you did your big Green Lantern run? What age group were you in? Um, I think I was 12 and Daryl was 13. I believe <laughs> that's... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Excuse me, guys. Uh, so what was that? 90? So that was 90... 92, 94, 93 about 94 um mm-hmm. somewhere around there so yeah i was in my i was in my mid-20s so as you a know, kid i was reading um about gwen stacy and and gary conway and all those people were like they were just reading stories and they had no idea that gwen stacy would have such a huge impact on the readership when you guys are doing all that stuff with hal jordan and kyle Brandon, you guys had any idea what stuff you would be setting into motion moving forward that still like ripples through the day daryl's over there shaking said no did all that stuff like catch you by surprise when like all of a sudden you're like in this big huge spotlight and you're like dudes we're just trying to write comic books just, you know relax you know i think um i think we had a i think at least i had a sense that it was going to be a big deal storyline when we took over green lantern um because it was a rat you know following on the heels of death of superman and breaking batman's back so this was this was the next one up in the chain um i don't think i was prepared for the vociferousness of the reaction dude you, know, you replaced cal jordan i did not like well, you know people went you know people went bad shit and i was kind of like well come on i was kid. one of them it was the oh, 90s. It's, just a, it's just a comic you know yeah. it's just it's just a made-up story for God's sake. Um, so yeah, I think people went a little nuttier than than um, we expected, but I, we knew it was going to be a, we knew it was going to garner a lot of attention. Um, and and certainly, you know, that was part of the reason it was designed the way it was, is, you know, we wanted people to sit up and take notice of a book and a character and a franchise that nobody had paid much attention to for a number of years. And you guys stayed on that for for several years you did a great run on that and you know and now looking back you're like oh yeah that's a great run i like that um because i was reading uh tom defalco and uh paul ryan i think did a big run on fantastic four it was like for 60 issues and at the time i'm going wow this really stinks there's but at the time like you guys are doing did then they were shaking up comics events happen things happen it's like kind of like to me today's like nothing ever happens in comic books and nothing ever matters anymore. It's just like one big event driven stuff. So I think a lot of fans, especially even newer fans really should go back and read like your guys's run of uh, Green Lantern 50 from that first run. Cause it still holds up after gosh, what 30 plus years or something like that. Oh, don't remind yeah. me. <laughs> Almost. Um, yeah. It, it um, well, they let us, it's certainly in our case, they let us do something that ended up being permanent. Um, and you and or, you actually got as to... permanent as anything in comics is we didn't you know we didn't roll it back six months later like you know like most things in comics yeah unfortunately that's what they do enough now and just ordered it right now guys on amazon i ordered the omnibus you finally broke me down ron with that, <laughs> that sales pitch of yours um got a hundred bucks out of you after all <laughs> finally i finally broke down Keith, yeah. i was going through your profile and you wrote a three-arc JSA storyline. How did that come about? I'm just curious. I mean, it was just right in the middle of Jeff John's run, and you wrote this, um, what was it, Infinite Earth's tie-in. How did, you, how did that come about? And, you know. Um, if I remember correctly. I mean, I'm talking like ancient history. It's like 20 years ago. Dude, I can't remember. No, it's JSA. crazy how fast time goes. I, I, you know, 
I had written a couple of things for DC at the time already, an issue of Legion, um, a short, like, eight-pager or something like that. And then I wrote some Green Lantern stuff, some Green Lantern core stuff. Sorry, I don't want to step on Ron's toes. And uh, that was pretty well received. Uh, and then I guess Jeff at the time was super busy on whatever crisis book uh, they were producing, and he just needed a breather. He couldn't handle everything. So uh, Tomasi, the editor, uh, said, hey, you want to uh, write this thing? And I had been inking the book for so long at that point. Anyways, I, I knew the characters. I knew the storylines. So it just made sense to, to pop me in there. Um, and then the rest is history. Yeah, because it's like for... 10 plus years, DC's just not known what to do with the Justice Society at all. And it's like, I, I'm hoping now that it actually um, becomes a, a big thing like it used to, because people don't realize, I mean, new fans, JS, the Justice Society, when you were doing it, it was a big comic back then. I mean, there's some really cool stuff. I mean, how long did you work on it, Keith? I had like a four-year run on JSA, which is you know unheard of now in, in the way that the industry works. But I was, you know, probably like professionally, you know, not to hog the interview or anything, but no, like no, that, no. Four, that, that four years is probably like my favorite time of my career and really of my life because I was the same window that my first son was born um, and I was finally getting traction as a writer, which is something I had worked for 10 years before that to try to get DC to let me write something, you know, so everything was just felt like it was coming together and I was having a good time, you know, with the people I was working with. I was good friends with Tomasi and you know, Jeff and I were sort of friends. So it all, you know, it was a good time. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to do with JSA either. I don't know what they should do with them. Just tell good stories with them. That's the key. Yeah, that there's so much stuff out there. It's like just tell good stories and actually be good. Speaking of good stories, um, Daryl, you had a, a long run on Justice Machine years ago. Was that a good, did you enjoy really doing that? I mean, because you were there for several, a long time. No, but people don't realize that Justice Machine came from Noble Comics and it was one of the first independent <coughs> publishers at comic book shops. It almost seems like it was also one of the first superhero groups from an independent publisher. How was that for you doing Justice Machine? Well, keep in mind, Justice Machine has bounced around to for different publishers, different creative teams, and different ownerships. I, I came in during the Millennium Comics years where they had purchased it from whoever had it previously, which was probably its creator, Mike Gustavich. Um, it was one of those things where I felt like I was still in school as far as comics are concerned. That was still amongst my first pencil jobs I've ever done. And so, uh, you know, still finding my way. I mean, to a degree, I feel that way. Here I am 34 years into a career. But back then, I was just, you know, that's still kind of my, my, my rookie year, you know. Um, I, I would say to myself, you know, if I do good enough on, on Justice Machine, maybe one day I can do Justice League. But, you know, it was, it was fun. I was working with a writer, uh, Mark Ellis, who had a lot of ideas on how to really expand the Justice Machine universe. And, you know, and he kind of let me have fun with you know, character creations and costume designs, which is definitely in my wheelhouse. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I loved the original Justice Machine, but I always thought the costumes were kind of lame. So I, I didn't realize that, you know, that Ronald brought it up today. I didn't realize that you'd done Justice Machine. So I'm guessing, did you redo those costumes? Oh, yeah. I, I That was one of the first things I wanted to do is, yeah. is to take on, you know, uh, you know what, what could I, what couldn't I 
I do. And it, the only thing was they have to be recognizable for who they were. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So, I mean, it, it was fairly obvious. I mean, you think about Titan, you know, he's the, the biggest one. So obviously right. anything I do with him is you, you'll know who that is, that sort of thing. So, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, you keep in mind, this was late eighties, early nineties, you know, that design sensibility was still there. there you know, uh, there was more of a, you know, uh, tactical kind of look and more armored more uh uh utility belt kind of thing going on you know as you would imagine mm-hmm. but uh, i i i felt like they were still rec- recognizable for who they were and, and of course we wanted to build on their characters and you know tell some different stories daryl yeah. you please know that while you were talking i ordered the justice omnibus from amazon too <laughs> <laughs> did you <laughs> were yeah you so- on the bus lines. that's great i don't have any money left to back ryan Irk now but i'm <laughs> on the way I'll, I'll send you a digital pdf keith oh thank you thank you send it to alfie well at least keith he's letting you uh he's going to send you the digital pdf he made me pay for mine so you know so uh back to you michael you've got another project that you're working on with daryl's horror one shot what's up with that one yeah it's uh like you said it's a horror one shot it's um you know, it's taking a you know second place to to Riot Earp right now because Daryl's a busy guy, you know, to begin with. But uh, it's it's I think it's going to be a really great story. Daryl's doing some awesome work on it. It's a uh, it's a bit of a period piece. It's set in the seventies, and it has that um, that uh, feel to it. Um, yeah, you know, Daryl's doing you know some nice work with the uh, with the scenes and the and the characters, and uh, yeah, it'll it hopefully be done and uh, released sometime, maybe next summer. Daryl, you don't do very many spooky, score, scary horror stuff, do you, in your career? Or I could be wrong. No, I, I not not in my opinion. I honestly, I think about. Uh, at one point, I, I used to teach. I, I taught at the, the school I graduated from. One thing I would always tell my students is you want to be able to do things that will continue to, to stretch you and help you grow as an artist by taking challenging things. But what's funny is when it came time for me to actually do that, I discovered, you know, that's that's a tall order. I, I think about when, when Ron and I did Harkins Raiders, you know, the World War II graphic novel. Wow, what it, it was a headache, but it was in a good kind of way. It was just using more uh, reference and and research muscles than i think you know i I had to do if it was set in modern times but uh but i enjoyed i I look back and it was also a growth period because i was making that transition from traditional media to digital media uh harkins raiders i'd say is maybe 85 90 percent digital whereas now i'm about 100 percent when it comes to, to comics work so you know it's it's a learning process, a growth process, but one that, you know, I, I look back on very fondly. I, I, I personally really like what I'm seeing with the, the things I'm working on. And as far as horror, no, I, I, that's, that's, that's not something that I can say I've got a lot of experience with, but you know, when, when you're doing comics, you know, you never know what type of story you need to tell. I mean, saying superhero, it's not just, it's not always sun drenched, you know, Clark Kent, Superman type of things. That's a part of it. So when Michael approached me about doing the horror story, I thought, all right, how 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 can I do this in order to tell the story, you know, that that's true, the script, the script and the vision for the characters, and uh, 
and of course being able to have the it feel like a period piece. So once again, that's that's another challenge, but hopefully I'm I'm living up to it. Definitely. Ron Mars, yes. You got a lot of stuff that you've done. I yeah. Um you've done a lot of stuff throughout the years, all kinds of iconic stuff. Is there something out there that you're like, well, wait a minute, I did this too, but nobody gives me much, you know, not that you need a pat on the back, but something you're like, well, you know, I actually did this. Is there anything out there? Um, well, you know, look, the, the audience is always going to remember the, you know, the superhero stuff, the, you know, the mainstream commercial stuff more than anything else, because that's the nature of nature of this business. And it's the nature of um, it's the nature of nostalgia and all of that stuff. So, um, and I think to to great extent, you know, people fall in love with the stuff that they discover at, you know, 12 or 13 years old. Um which is great, which is, you know, which is the kind of the way this is intended to be. So people who discovered Green Lantern or Silver Surfer at just the right age are still very attached to that stuff. And I'm um, immensely grateful for that. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's flattering to have people come up and bring those books to you and they want them autographed or they, you know, they want to tell you that, you know, this, <clears throat> this issue of Silver Surfer or Green Lantern or whatever it was, was their first comic. And, you know, that pulled them into the, into being a fan of the medium. All of that stuff is great. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it's the stuff that, you know, it's the creator owned stuff that you do that is a little nearer and dearer because it didn't exist before you got there. Right. Um, Silver Surfer certainly existed before I got there. Um, you know, Jack Kirby and John Buscema and Stanley kind of did okay with it. Um, so, um, but I think the stuff that you um, that you generate from nothing, that you build from a foundation that you pour, um, tends to be a little bit more um, a little bit more dear to you. Um, stuff like Samurai Heaven and Earth that I did for Dark Horse, um, which is a historical samurai comic. Um, that's actually now out of print. The rights are reverted to myself and Luke Ross, and we'll see some more of that at some point. Um, um, that's pro that's one of my favorite things. I like the stuff that I did at CrossGen. Um, you know, there's I've been doing it for 30 years, so I've had I've had a lot of different um, I've had a lot of different dance partners uh, with this whole thing. So um, I you know it's like your kids you, you love you love all of them you love all of them equally but you love some of them a little bit more than others um and that tends to be the creator own stuff i think because it's it's yours you you know you own it at the end of the day and it's um it is what it is completely because of you and your artistic partners um rather than being the next guy that gets to take over surfer or green lantern or thor or witchblade or any of the other stuff that i worked on Keith, you're a letterer, and I often feel letterers don't get their share of credit. Why did you decide to get into the whole thing of lettering? I mean, what was behind, why are you a letterer? Um, so I, I think my, my real motivation to wanting to take up the lettering side of things was just uh, from my creator-owned stuff that I write, um, I liked having the final control, like the extra level of control on the, on the dialogue, the ability to continue tweaking and editing dialogue until the last possible second, because I'm putting the words on the page as, as well, you know, and um, 
but it took me forever to like actually like take a lettering class and finally like pull the trigger and do it. And then I started doing it and it's just, I just find it very relaxing. It's a different set of creative muscles. Uh, so it feels fresh and new because when you've been inking or, or whatever for, you know, 28, 29 years, it's kind of the same thing a lot. Uh, and, you know, and that's why I, another reason I first started writing was just a different uh, creative outlet. And the same with, with lettering became a different creative outlet. Are you right? Like, Are I'm you very, right? I'm no, no, go ahead. Keep going. You're fine. No, I just, like I said, it, I just find it very relaxing. Like it's easy way, not easy. Like there's challenges on every page, especially Daryl's page just really give me a hard time. Uh, <laughs> well, the art is so pretty that it's like hard. You don't want to cover anything up with it. So you're and also, so you're also <laughs> a writer, right? You're still writing stuff on the side every now and then. Yeah, no, I'm, I write a lot of stuff. Actually, I, I don't think I've inked a page in months. I've been all writing and lettering. Who, what are you doing? What's your current projects? Uh, I have a book called Daybreak. I have a book called uh, The Jump, a book called The Defense. did a book for Aftershock called The Death Whisperer, uh, which I'm also lettering all of those. Okay. Um, you know, what, you know I, I keep super busy. I'm always juggling a bunch of different things. What about you, Brad? What are you doing in, in currently in comic books? Anything exciting? Um, stuff that I can tell you about. <laughs> um, um, I'm working on something for Marvel right now that I can't tell you about. Of um, course not. That will be out next year. Um, <clears throat> um, a bunch like a like. There's a whole list of what I'm working on around here somewhere in my in my sort of messy office. Um, um, but a lot of it is stuff that's, you know, all of it is stuff that's due out next year and not quite, um, not quite announceable yet. There's, um, there's another couple of heavy metal projects that I'm doing. I just finished up one called Swamp God for them. Uh, so there's more heavy metal stuff. There's an espionage book, um, that's coming out, um, independently, um, and a good chunk of my time is taken up working on um, working as part of the narrative team on Diablo 4 for Blizzard. Do you enjoy writing as much as you did like in earlier days? I mean, because you've got, I mean, you've gone around the, the block a few times at different things. Does it ever get stale or do you constantly reinvent yourself and just find new challenges? Um, I don't think I reinvent myself because this is, this is, you know, like inventing stuff is the job. That's, that's what you do every day. If you're just repeating yourself, you're not going to, you know, you don't survive in this business. Um, and that's not challenging anyway. I mean, you're not supposed to be telling the same story over and over and over again. Um, so I, I don't, I don't find it, um, uh, you know, I don't find it at all like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm tired of doing this. Or, so certainly days where, certainly days when you get up in the morning and, you know, oh man, I don't, I don't have an idea in my head for this thing, which is one of the reasons that, writers are blessed to be working on three or four or five or six different projects all at the same time because if you don't you know if um book a isn't working for you book b you can move on to and do some pages um uh you're so it's a constant juggling act of of what you're working on what feels like you've got some you know some some momentum on what's due next um it's all you know it, it's a juggling act but it's it's one that you have to get used to in this business or you don't really survive um so i you know i still 
uh, I still love this job every day I get to do it. I realize how fortunate I am and that, um, you know, telling stories in this way is um, is just one of the best gigs on the planet. What about you, Daryl? When you're not uh, tied up with uh, Michael here, what are you doing with us on the side? Um, I'm also, I, I do a conceptual illustration for the Bradford Exchange. I don't know if you've ever seen yes. it there. Yes. Yeah. I've been with them for about almost 15 years. Um, the thing about working with them is I never know what they're going to need. I mean, they have licensed properties from almost everybody. I mean, I've done stuff, Marvel, DC, uh, the NFL, uh, McDonald's, uh, DreamWorks, Disney. Uh, it's more like I get an email. They tell me what they need, et cetera. And we kind of go from there. Um, and it's, it's kind of fun because it's they, they tend to want simple things. It reminds me of when I used to do a lot of toy design for Hasbro. Uh, it was the same thing. A lot of conceptual things, like well, like for example, the uh, the first Captain America movie, the first Avenger. Um, Hasbro wanted to explore what what can we do toy wise that didn't appear in the movie. Just things that were just for the toys, you know. So I remember uh, some of them actually got made. There was a Captain America as like a armored SWAT agent. I don't know. They just they wanted it and they made it. Uh, Captain America with uh, a, a jetpack and a and a uh, and a parachute, that sort of thing. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I also do a character de uh, design and illustration for fillsforgames.com. Uh, it's a company that's been around since, wow, late 80s. I remember I used to buy a lot of wrestling magazines and I would see their ads and I would just, you know, see these crazy characters. In them. And one day I met Tom Filsinger himself at a convention. He goes, hey, I'd like you to, to you know, do some characters for me. And I thought, wow, I never would have thought that would you know i would see that happen and so uh yeah we've been doing that for oh i'd say probably going on 11 years or so and you know occasionally some dc stuff will pop up like you know ron and i back in 2020 we did a uh we got to revisit some old friends uh in green lantern and uh, some I've done some cover work recently. Like this looks a little familiar, probably. It's a, ah, I don't know. A Joker variant cover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Based on uh, GL49. And I've done a couple covers for Milestone. This is the first one I did. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, Nubia and the Amazons. It was a, uh, a limited series. I did uh, some covers and a, some, a few interior work here and there. This is an example of one of those. And uh, I did. I mentioned earlier, Ron and I worked on Harkins Raiders. That was a uh, a Kickstarter graphic novel. See oh, that? okay, yeah. Uh, um, I'm probably forgetting something, but uh, cool stuff like that. And then, of course, not that I I did work on it, but it's it's cool seeing things like when McFarlane Toys makes. Oh, that's so cool. Action figures. Of, he just uh, he just showed up a, a Kyle Ratner and a Parallax stuff. Yeah, this is so cool. <laughs> I like how Daryl has like, like everything right off camera that he needs. <laughs> yeah. like he's got all his books right. He's so organized, dude. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he, he prepped for this for like the next last three hours. He's prepping. You know, it's like yeah, because it's like you know, I was getting ready for this. So I'm like, okay, I got to shave. I got to shower. I got to do this. I'm like, dude, you're not going on a date. Jeez, relax. It's okay. I put the cats to sleep. I like overfed them. They're all like, you know, in the back over there. Um, Keith, you are actually a 
Joe Kubert School graduate. How was that experience for you? Because I used to see all the ads when I was growing up as a kid. And I was just kind of curious how that worked for you and who, what cool people did you get to work with and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was the Kubert School when I went there, and it could be different now. I don't know. Uh, it was very much you got out of it what you put into it. Um, the teachers, you know, some of my teachers were old time, old timey comic artists like Tex Blaisdell oh. or Delbo, you know, and they were happy to work with you if you came to them and showed them that you really wanted to learn. And if you were just kind of an idiot, then they would just kind of brush you away and they wouldn't spend time on you. Okay. So you, you kind of had to seek out the education a little bit. Um, it was very labor intensive. I, you know, school was six hours a day and then we'd have six or eight hours of homework at night. And the, the philosophy of that was like, I forget what teacher said this, but like everyone, the, the, the saying was something like, you know, everyone has like 5,000 bad drawings in them. And so they made you get those 5,000 drawings out of you. So you can start doing, uh, you know, some good drawings. I'm on drawing 2,608 right now, by the way. I'm finally starting to get halfway through. Um, Joe Kubert, great guy. Like, just, I, I can't love that guy enough for, you know, for how I knew him. Um, when I when I was 23, stupid little story about Joe that I love to tell. But, you know, here's the thing. People like to hear those stories that you guys are telling. That's why when I was putting these questions together. I'm like, I don't want to give the listeners the same stuff that you guys repeated for years and years. I was trying to like, okay, how can we twist things up? No, listeners really want to go on, Keith. That's what they really want to hear are these really... Yeah, no, well, so, you know, kind of a boring day in class um, when I was 23. And just to kill time, um, I arm wrestled my entire class. Like one at a time, I arm wrestled everybody and I beat my entire class. There were probably, you know, 12 or 14 kids in the class. And and so then Andy Kubert was like, oh, I heard that you beat your whole class. Like you should try arm wrestling my dad. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll arm wrestle him, sure. I'm 23, Joe's like 72. Oh, wow. I'm like, I'll, you know, I have no problem like breaking Joe Kubert's arm. I'll do it in a second. So uh, long story short, Joe crushed me. <laughs> uh, that guy was strong as a bear. He nearly broke my arm. Like he put me down like I was a baby. And uh, <laughs> it's one of my one of my favorite memories of Joe, aside from him inking uh, a couple of my drawings for me just to be a nice guy. Uh, like, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time at the Cuba School. And then, you know, all my professional connections at first came from Andy who, uh, you know, showed my work to Bob Harris at Marvel. And I met Tom Mandrake when I was at the school and he hired me as a background inker. Uh, Ken Branch, who was an inker at the time, I helped him out with a lot of books as a background inker. Like I would not have broken in the business without the discipline and the connections I made from that school. Thanks for sharing. I like that story. I'm going to remember that about Joe Cooper. Um, Cause a lot of these people nowadays, you know, the new readers, they don't realize who some of these iconic people are. And Joe Cooper was really somebody that people should know because he's, he's foundational, you know, mm. people talk about this man. Yeah. I, that's what I heard also. Uh, Michael, where does Ryan Earp go from here in the future? What uh, do you have any big things up your sleeve? You're gonna get like a Jim Jim Lee, a Frank Miller, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, um, we've got the knock on wood. It comes through a, a varying cover by Jim Starlin. 
Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that's huge. He's yeah, I'm a, a big fan of his from way back when. Uh, but as for Ryder, the project itself, hopefully it'll keep going. Uh, that's you know the idea. I mean, when I when I first started it, uh, yeah, I envisioned it as as a monthly comic, and I wound up with uh, I think fourteen uh, issues, you know, written already. And I had to stop myself. I had to force myself to stop. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I'm I'm hopeful that that one day, uh, yeah, those fourteen issues will will see the light of day. Yeah. Um, like I told Michael before, you know, I, I knew he was having this special project coming up and I've always liked Riot Earp and him and I've had good talks um, before. I said, I would have had you on even without these guys coming on the podcast. And I, again, I'm really appreciative of having everybody on here. The rest of you guys, do you have any parting words you want to say before we wrap this up? I just want to say thanks for having me on here. I just I always, uh, I never take it for granted that people want to hear anything I have to say. And so I, I'm just, uh, thanks for having me on the show. What about you, Ron? I'd like to say Daryl's a suck up. <laughs> Daryl, Daryl, uh, you, can, Daryl, you can come on anytime you want on the podcast. We'll find good stuff to talk about. You're always welcome. Awesome. Um, no, I, I mean, I think the obvious thing to say is, uh, you know, hope people come out and support Mike's Kickstarter for Rioter. It was, um, it look, it's always fun for Daryl and I to do something together. Um, we have been, you know, we have been creative partners for. 25 years um you know on a daily basis for seven years on green lantern and then intermittently now and then and look anytime anytime we get the chance to team up on something um it's it's just a sheer pleasure and and you know the the years kind of roll back um uh completely um there's a there's a rhythm to to working with somebody that you know so well and knowing what they're going to do and knowing that, you know, Daryl, what it's going to look like when Daryl takes my script and does what he does to it. Um, that to me is the greatest pleasure that um, a comic book writer gets is the thing that just existed in your head previously um, is turned over to somebody and they make it real. They make, they make that story real. Um, I suspect Keith and Mike would say the same thing is that that's the, that's the magic time for what we do is when the pages come back into your inbox and you get to see, um, you get to see what was only a, you know, uh, only a figment of your imagination previously uh, made into a real thing. Keith, what about you? You get the last word, you're the last one. Wow, the last word, it's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> well, I think, you know, aside from writer, uh, the special being beautifully drawn, uh, well-written, it, it does have, uh, comics hottest young letter or Alfie Betts <laughs> uh, just putting that extra little bit of shine on there so people should definitely uh, jump on it for that reason alone <laughs> and then uh, Ron if you want to give me the hat tip on what you're writing for Marvel I will pre-order the album <laughs> <laughs> we'll get that <laughs> Okay, once again, I had Michael Katz on talking about his Kickstarter campaign. There'll be links in the show notes. We had Ron Mars, Keith Champagne, and Daryl Banks. Everybody, thank you very much for being on the podcast. You are all welcome back at any time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ronald. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. 
I hope you stick around for future episodes. If you like this podcast, please spread the word. Recommend it to comic fans. With this episode, I've added a link tree to the show notes, allowing you easy access to the comic fan podcast platforms and social media accounts. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I want the podcast to grow and introduce fans to a different way of covering comic books. Again, thanks so much for listening. See you next time.